Thanks, Abby. We now have the privilege of reading God's word together, hearing from him in his word. We're reading 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. 2 Corinthians chapters 4, 1 to 12. If, I'd encourage you to open your own Bibles if you've got those here. And if you uh, would like a Bible, uh, you just stick your hand up and James is up the back there. He's got um, a number there so you can follow along. Just to give you a bit of context about this passage, uh, this is Paul the Apostle writing to the Christian church in Corinth. Uh, Paul's been writing to these Christians there about the ministry of sharing the glorious good news about Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, 1-12. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Well, thank you, Jody. Chapel Lane, good evening. Uh, great to be with you tonight. Uh, Pete Stedman is my name on staff here at Norwest. It'd be great to keep uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 open in front of you. Uh, we will certainly come back to that. Uh, a number of you have told me and others on the team how much you've enjoyed our Term 4 sermon series, which we've called Asking for a Friend, a series where we've wrestled with hard questions that others might have, which they might raise with you, or maybe just quietly questions that you yourself have wrestled with. And to be, to be frank, there's been some tricky questions. So a couple of weeks ago, we had the question, how can you trust the Bible? There's been some hard-to-hear questions. Uh, we've heard the question, how can a loving God send people to hell? There's been some awkward questions. Why are Christians so judgmental? Tonight, it gets very personal for each of us. Because tonight, our question is, does God care when we hurt? Which is really the question of suffering, of grief, of scars, of pain. In many ways, I've stood before our church today trembling, for I've known so many of the stories of our people, so many of people's journeys, so many of people's losses. 
It's what a pastor does, really. Shepherd people through valleys into greener pastures in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I stand here tonight as one who knows my own griefs and scars and losses as well. There'll be people in the room who know exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about pain. There'll be others sitting in the room thinking, huh, funny we're doing this topic. To you I say, just wait. Just wait. Which is also to make the point that very few of us come to this topic merely intellectually stimulated by it. Uh, It may well be intellectually stimulating, but that's probably only because it's been deeply and personally experienced by many of us first. So I want us to think about this together as fellow believers in the room or maybe as an interested skeptic in this whole Jesus thing. But certainly I want, to think us, I want us together to think about this as people who might just love to know that there could be a reason behind the griefs and the trials that we endure. We're going to think about three things tonight. Pain in this world. Then the question, what sort of God allows pain in this world? And thirdly, what is the point of our pain in this world? All under the heading, does God care when we hurt? Now, with a topic such as this, um, we've got to start by acknowledging that the, the world we live in is in many ways a world of pain. Not exclusively, of course, but significantly. In, in fact, for many people, this very topic is what's known as a defeater belief. A defeater belief. That is, there are some people who, who have experienced so much pain in their lives, so much hurt that they say there simply cannot be a God. Pain defeats belief in God. Or at the very least, uh, defeats belief in a God of compassion or care. Of course, just walk with enough people and this becomes very understandable. Many of us will have met people who have suffered so much um, that we feel the impotence of speaking to them about a God of love and tenderness and hope. I've felt that. Maybe you have too. And because there's so much pain in this world, so much injustice, so much selfishness, this has led some to believe that there just cannot be a God. The state of the world leads some to a position of atheism. Now, the classic proponent of this, with his classic quote for this, is an atheist, new atheist, he's called, by the name of Richard Dawkins. I want to read his statement on this in full, extended as it is, so we can feel the full weight of his argument. It's on the screen. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst and disease. It must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty, this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. 
He's a very good author. Now, the argument, his argument is essentially, look at the world. Look at what you see. Think about what you can't see. So much suffering. There cannot be a God behind all of that. Of course, there's a problem with his argument. I wonder if you spotted it. Looking at the world and surmising that the amount of suffering means there is no God raises another, perhaps more difficult question. And this is the question that can be gently put back to the atheist to explain back to you. And it's this question. How do you explain pain? Because if you have no God, you still have pain. So now you have pain, but no God, which means that you have no meaning behind pain. That sense of injustice you feel, it's nothing, just chemicals. That wrong that was done to you, who says it was wrong? Wrong needs to find its truth in some higher right. And sometimes I think Christians feel great pressure to be able to explain to people who ask them where pain comes from in this world. But think about this. The question of pain is a question that every person has to engage with, faith position or not. The hedonist, the atheist, the spiritualist all need to acknowledge that pain is real, difficult and present. We live in a painful world. So if we start tonight by acknowledging that pain is a universal challenge for every creature under the sun, not just Christians, that then automatically leads to the, the, the very good question, well, then what sort of God would allow pain? And whilst that question sort of runs off my lips quite easily here and now, that is actually quite a profound question when you think about it. Because in the depths of your despair, when you feel like you're just hanging on by a thread, when you feel so fragile that you could shatter into a million pieces, when what someone else has done to you is so raw, you can taste it. That is a different question. What sort of God would allow me to go through that and over and over and over? So some say a weak God. A weak God, a God who does not have the capacity to do anything about the great volume of wickedness in this world. A God who's impotent. Now, what sort of God is that? I want you to compare that for a moment with the God we meet on the pages of our Bible. Hear this. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. And his understanding no one can fathom. No, he's not weak. Others will say, okay, well, he's not weak, but he is malevolent. That is, rather than God being good, he's just not. God is not good. Like many of the capricious deities of religions, both past and present, that must be who God is. Now, this playoff between weakness and wickedness was first raised by the Greek philosopher Epicurus 300 years before Christ, but then was brought into the popular consciousness by the Scottish philosopher David Hume in 1779, where he posed this statement. He said, 
Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Well, then he's not all powerful. Is God able, but not willing? Well, then he's wicked. Is God both able and willing? Then where does evil come from? Is he neither able nor willing? What sort of God is that? So to summarize that, uh, if God can't do it, he's weak. If he can do it, yet he doesn't, he's wicked. He's not good. Some hold to this. But this doesn't square with what the Bible says about God either. Everywhere in the Bible, we're told that God is good. One example, Psalm 103. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Um, Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. You see, according to the Bible, God is not weak and nor is he wicked. But if he's not weak, he's not wicked, perhaps God is simply disengaged. Actually, I think this is the one that almost everyone in the broader community thinks. Think about your friends at school or uni. Very few of them will be atheists or consistent atheists. They'll probably think, oh, God could be there. I don't know. But if he is there, he's disengaged. How most people think is this? Well, if God's there, he's out there. Uh, And he's distant. He's not present in my life and my day to day. But I'm here. And I don't see much of him. And then when suffering hits, pain hits, that view becomes entrenched for people. God may well be out there, but he's not looking at me. In Matthew 6, though, Jesus speaks about God in a very different way. And he describes how precious people are to God. This is what he says on the screens. Do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink. Or about your body, what you'll wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? The Bible does not show us a God who is weak, wicked or disengaged. But the Bible does show us something else. You know, Christians throughout millennia and today have always believed that the clearest picture of what our God is like and who he is, is seen in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. For he is, we're told, both the image and the radiance of God himself. Now, some say God is weak, but Jesus wasn't. Jesus walked on water. He calmed storms. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. Whatever Jesus was, he was not weak. Some say God is wicked. Well, Jesus wasn't. Jesus loved the marginalized, cared for the ostracized, cast out demons, and stood against sin. In fact, you could summarize Jesus' whole life by saying that he lived and died to destroy wickedness. Some say God is disengaged. Jesus wasn't. He spoke with beggars. He walked with prostitutes. He taught teachers and schooled lawyers. He wept with the mourning and he broke bread with the hungry. No one's been more engaged with the people around them than Jesus. 
So what sort of God allows pain? Well, here's what we can say so far. The God who allows pain is also, and at the very same time, the God who is powerful, who is good, and who is deeply engaged, deeply engaged with this world. Not just at the macro level of gravity and planets, but in the minutiae of food and rest and health. And so, Chapel Lane, that brings us to our final question, the question that I haven't answered, the question that, if you like, has been begging for an answer tonight, and it's this. So what's the point of our pain? If the Bible tells us that pain is real and universal, if the Bible shows us that God is powerful, good, and engaged, then why my pain? Why your pain? The answer to that is no one really knows. I can't stand before you tonight and give you the answer that every human has asked and every philosopher has pondered. But what I can do tonight is show you how in God's perfect plan, your pain and mine is never wasted. To put it more simply, the reason for our pain is not so clear. The purpose of our pain is crystal. Joe Eaton is a 30-year-old man who lives with the permanent disabling condition of spina bifida. And he has written beautifully on disability and trust in a sovereign God. Listen to what he says. Both pain and pleasure are meant to point us to the same reality, namely that Jesus Christ is infinitely beautiful and so much more than enough for our every need. Living for Jesus, even suffering for him, is worth every moment of affliction. Why? Because Jesus shows you such beauty in pain because he's there and he's carrying us through. Disability and suffering and I exist for the glory of God. I pray that in times of suffering and times of pleasure, my life would magnify the one, and here he quotes 2 Corinthians, my life would magnify the one who died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now think about this for a moment. This is a stunning revelation from a man who lives with permanent disability. That he has grown to see that there is something bigger than his personal circumstances. What is that? The glory of his God. And there is the start to the answer to the question of what is the point of my pain? That the God of infinite power and wisdom and goodness might be glorified in your very life. And this truth always takes me back to another part of 2 Corinthians. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It was the section we heard read before. And Paul writes here and describes his life in this world and the shape of his ministry for Jesus. Now, Paul does this here that we might recognize something of the shape of our lives and our ministries in this world. What Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 is that your life lived for Jesus is going to be rough. But it will not break you. Now, so you can see I'm not making it up. Look at verses 8 and 9 in chapter 4. 
That's what Paul says. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. What he's saying here is that whatever is going on for you as you live for Jesus in this world, as you are single or married for Jesus in this world, as you try to live in your family for Jesus in this world, as you try to speak for Jesus in this world, you will be squeezed and pushed and tested and tried. But you will not be broken. You will not be crushed. You won't be left despairing nor abandoned or destroyed. In your trial will be God's grace for you. Now that's the reality of what's coming, whether you've experienced that or not. That's what's coming. But just before Paul tells us this, he gives us this stunning picture, which I just want us to consider for a moment. It's verse 7. Have a look at that. Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. Can you look at the screens, please? This is a first-century jar of clay found in the Qumran district of the Middle East, probably used for storing water. Now, as you look at that, what do you notice? It's cracked broken all over. This would have been found in pieces in a cave. You probably would have walked past, but some archaeologist thought it to be a good idea to put it back together. And we're thankful they did. Now, here's the point. A jar of clay is essentially worthless. It's made of dirt. It's temporary. It's weak. It cracks. It chips. And you sometimes look at it and you think, I'm not sure that's even worth keeping. And yet Paul here says... But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What does he mean here? He means that inside a container of dirt, there is a treasure of inestimable value. Now, you do hear what he's saying here, right? Two things, one of them slightly offensive. Here's the first He's saying, You are the dirt. You're the dirt. Now, if that is offensive to you, Sorry, not sorry, because one day someone at your funeral, someone like me, will stand there and say, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. They're talking about you, okay? We are the dust, the dirt, the clay. But Paul's saying inside of you, as Jesus takes hold of you and you take hold of him, is something of such enormous value. Now stay with me because it gets better. He says, verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. Listen, why? To show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not us. Do you see what that second piece there means? It's this very juxtaposition of the treasure against the dust that makes the treasure shine all the more brightly. Or go back to the illustration. The more the jar, is clay, is, the jar of clay is cracked, the more pieces are broken off the jar of clay and are missing, the more the treasure within can be seen. What does that mean? It means that, Chapelaine, the treasure of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is being known and loved and forgiven and restored by the one who died on the cross in your place, on your behalf, that will be seen in your lives more clearly, more clearly as you are chipped and cracked and squashed and damaged. It's funny. We spend our lives pretending we've got it all together, that we're cool 
that actually we don't have any problems, that life's smooth. And it is the opposite of what the truth is. Let me put it this way by mixing metaphors. The jar might get cancer, may deal with chronic unemployment, might struggle with mental health, might struggle with sexuality, may carry the, dysfunction, the shame of dysfunctional relationships. But despite that, actually not despite that, through that or because of that, the glory of the gospel will shine through more brightly as the treasure of the Lord Jesus remains in the jar. And here's what you have to know. Here's what you have to know tonight. It is not accidental that God's power is seen in weakness. It is his pattern for all whom he loves. Think about Jesus, the king of the world, right? The potentate of time, creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. The word became flesh who made his dwelling among us, who humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And who then carried beatings and spit and nakedness and ridicule and shame with him along the way. Now think about the Apostle Paul. God's plan for Paul is to so squeeze Paul and push Paul and mould Paul into the shape of the life of Jesus himself. Verse 10 tells us, see that, that Paul will in some way carry around the death of Jesus in his own life. Why? that the resurrection of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the hope of Jesus might be also seen in him like a cracked and chipped and broken jar of clay. Chapel Lane, that is God's desire for every person who he calls to follow him. It's to so mould you and squeeze you and push you and chip you that you look more like Jesus day by day. Weak, broken, that people might see the hope of the Lord Jesus, the life of the Lord Jesus shining through. So my friends, remember this well. It is not in spite of pain and loss and grief that we model Jesus and speak of Jesus and live for Jesus. It is through pain and loss and grief that we do that. The treasure in the jar of clay is seen most brilliantly when the jar is fractured, yet the treasure still shines. Your weakness which you pretend not to have, but you do. Your illness, your desperate fears, your dysfunctional family give you wonderful opportunities for the remarkable treasure of the gospel of the Lord Jesus to shine wonderfully in you out of dark places. Let me finish. Two weeks ago, I sat on that deck for an hour with a man from Norwest for whom I have remarkable respect. Remarkable respect. He struggles with mental health issues. He wrestles with his sexuality. He questions his parenting. He considers what sort of husband he is. Work is uncertain. His physical health is challenged. And he's telling me that he thinks that right now, at this time, God's teaching him the importance of learning to sit in his pain whilst knowing at the same time that God's face is turned towards him. And also knowing that he'll probably never have answers to the thousands of questions that he has. I think that man was describing to me what Psalm 34 speaks about, where it says this, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Does God care 
when we hurt. <laughs> he really does. Let's pray together. Good gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way you speak to us. We thank you for what we read in James chapter 1, where you tell us that blessed is the person who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Father, help us to believe that we are blessed under trial. We feel cursed. We think you've turned your face away. Help us know that you have us in those moments. And Father, will you help us never waste our suffering? Don't let us waste our suffering. May we allow you to use it to show us how desperately we need your grace, your kindness, and your son Jesus always. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.